Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, this is Bill Grobe, and welcome back to another episode of In the Break Room with Bill. You know, today I, I was so lucky to catch Deanna Hayes, my wonderful, amazing partner and colleague uh, with the firm. Deanna is stopping in after being with our partner, the LPGA, and talking on a webinar about the new normal in technology. Deanna, thank you so much for stopping by. We're gonna we're gonna talk today, I hope, about the Florida Stop Woke Act. Now, I have to admit, I had to look up woke. I've heard it a lot recently. Um, Wanted to make sure that I understood what the meaning of it was. Of course, as it's defined in the Florida Act, was not exactly how it was defined in the information that I was looking up. But it does appear that the governor of the state of Florida and the legislature has decided that at least the teachings of what appears to be critical race theory in school and for some reason in the workplace, which I really haven't seen that going on, but maybe we can talk about that, is bad. And so this act has now been passed by the legislature. My understanding is that it hasn't been signed by Governor DeSantis. Really was interested in what your take on this is and and what we should be doing about it with regard to our clients and, and telling our clients about how to conform when this thing is signed. Sure. Thank you, Bill, for having me. It's exciting to be here after speaking um, with LPGA, like you said, last week on what is the new normal when it comes to remote work and technology. And this is a, an, another concept of what is the new normal as far as what is acceptable to have within workplace training. And I, like you, had to look up what does woke mean, uh, according to the state of Florida. And back in December, Governor DeSantis's office issued a news release about this act, and he calls it the Stop the Wrongs to Our Kids and Employees Act. And it's really designed to take on corporate wokeness and critical race theory in addition to how this is taught in schools. And of course, for our purposes, we will focus on the workplace. But I thought some of the quotes by Governor DeSantis were interesting. He says, in Florida, We are taking a stand against the state-sanctioned racism that is critical race theory. And he goes on to say that we must protect Florida workers against the hostile work environment that is created when large corporations force their employees to endure critical race theory-inspired training and indoctrination. I read that too. And I thought, you know, I have been practicing for over 20 years and you've been practicing a great deal of time yourself. And I know that you and I both have been involved in or perform or review training all over the country and certainly throughout the state of Florida. And and I can tell you, I tried to rack my brain and I can't think of one instance where this type of critical race theory has been taught in any type of employee training. Have you seen anything like that? Because I'm baffled. I agree with you. I was very surprised by this act in and of itself. And it's one of the things that we discussed as far to, as far as HR Florida's legislative conference that happens every year. And I think everyone was taken aback that this was 
this much of an issue to, to deserve its own act. And, you know, I have not seen it in the training that I've reviewed. Certainly, DeSantis did give some examples in that press release that he says support the need for this act. Uh, one is a defense contractor who he claims launched a critical race theory program that encourages white employees to confront their privilege reject the principle of equality and defund the police. But that's one example. Another um, is a finance industry corporation that he says teaches that the United States is a system of white supremacy and encourages employees to become woke at work and teaches them that white toddlers develop racial bias by ages three to five. And then the last one is a, a technology company that he says claims that America is a system of white supremacy and that all Americans are raised to be racist. Well, I'll tell you, I, frankly, I, I have not seen any of that kind of training. And, and as I've read through this bill and it's, it's pages upon pages with regard to educational doctrine for our K through 12 schools, because um, clearly I have no idea that that's been being taught in school, but I certainly haven't seen it. But only a very small portion of it is dedicated to employers. And, and, and I guess my question is, you know, these are folks who are able to be in the workforce, usually a more sophisticated group of folks who are being trained by sophisticated employers. And when did it become that people would be unable to make their own choices about whether or not to, to buy into critical race theory, even though, again, I haven't seen it being taught, uh, certainly in any of the trainings that I've seen, when did we decide that people shouldn't have the right to choose what they believe? And, and I think that has stemmed or triggered a lot of constitutionality claims that when and if the governor signs this, I suspect we're going to see some, some uh, claims go before the courts to determine whether the law is constitutional. I agree. And it's interesting the way this act is set up is it actually amends the already existing Florida Civil Rights Act to add an additional unlawful employment practice category of subjecting an employee to this type of training as a condition of employment. And when you look at it that way, certainly the Florida Civil Rights Act already protects reverse discrimination just as Title VII does. So it seems that these, if this is really happening in the workplace, it, it would be already protected under the Florida Civil Rights Act. This just makes it a specific category of unlawful employment practice. So that's interesting. And it's something that you know, we see from time to time where you'll have state level protection that's really duplicative of protection that was already there. And, and you're right. So, so here's the concern that I have, and and I think our clients share this concern. Is you know it it amends the Florida Civil Rights Act on this specific topic, but the law is so vague. How the heck are folks supposed to determine whether or not people are feeling uncomfortable in training because of uh, some allegation of critical race theory? or that uh, individuals are, are somehow made to feel guilty because of the basically the acts of their ancestors. And what the heck are the courts supposed to do with it? Mm -hmm. I think those are great questions. And, I, you know, certainly one of the concepts that was discussed during the HR Florida Legislative Conference when this bill was, was discussed was, 
if the state of Florida is going to do this, might it be a good idea that the Florida Commission on Human Relations comes up with some parameters of acceptable training or a template that would be acceptable under these do you standards? Think, though, do you think, though, when we're training the FCHR on enforcing this, that that might be a violation of the law by talking about the critical race theory? <laughs> it certainly could be. It's, it's vague enough. So, you know, and I think you're spot on there that how do you know what is going to make one person feel oppressed versus another? And I think the best tool that employers might have to deal with this issue is considering adding a disclaimer to the training materials that has specialized language that mirrors the language in the statute, if it's signed into law, that basically says this training is not intended to compel an employee to believe one way or another, as far as the concepts that are discussed within the training itself. Right. So, so if our clients are asking about this, you know, uh, I, and I've certainly had clients ask about it. I know you've had clients ask about it. One of the things that, that I think is a, a normal response is let's take a look at it. We'll take a look at the training together and make a determination if, if facially there is something in any of the slides or the presentation materials that might be questionable under the act. But I, I really also like the idea of the disclaimer, right? The company does not endorse this training to adopt or believe any concepts you may believe are represented in the training, which may be oppressive or inspire feelings of guilt, you know, something like that. And then what about maybe making the training voluntary? What are you thinking about that? Right. Absolutely. If the training is made voluntary, then it would not violate the act because it's not a condition of employment. I think employers just have to balance because certainly there are some states that require sexual harassment training, just making sure that you're complying with those states requirements. And you may even want to consider having a separate program for Florida if need be, if there's something that might be suspect under the Florida Act. And I've started to review some of these these programs that clients have asked about, and I have yet to see anything that, that I believe would either be overt or even subjectively uh, something that would run afoul of this. But how do we discuss this with the trainers, the folks that are doing the training, to make sure that you can have anything on a slide and that, that information may be completely innocuous, but if someone inadvertently just says the wrong thing, you know, what can we do to make sure that the folks who are providing the training to the employees in the em employer workplaces are somehow educated? That's a great question. I've had some clients raise that question as well. And, and some have expressed that they may consider using video training so that there's no room for interpretation when it comes to this topic. And it re you know, removes that possibility that what a trainer could say might lead to a claim. But I think, you know, certainly from our experience, in-person training tends to be more engaging, more interactive, and more effective oftentimes than video training can be. So if a client feels strongly that they want to do the in-person training, then those trainers will just have to be trained themselves on the act and what is prohibited and off limits as far as what can be discussed. And again, I think we just have to explain to them what the language says, which, as you indicated earlier, it's pretty broad and pretty vague. And it, the protected categories that are addressed within the act are race, color, sex, and national origin. So basically what it says is that members of one of those categories can't be made to feel that they are morally superior to members of another one of those protected categories 
or that by virtue of an individual's protected categories, they are inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive. It goes on to say that an individual's moral character or status as either privileged or oppressed is not necessarily determined by his or her protected category. This one is interesting. It says members of one protected category cannot and should not attempt to treat others without respect to their protected categories. So I'm not sure what that means. I don't know if you have a take on that, Bill. I don't know if that that's the concept that that colorblindness is no longer the way to handle this, that you should acknowledge someone's protected categories for what they are. But that one struck me as odd. I don't know if you have thoughts on that one. Well, you know, and, and, and that's really tough, Deanna. You're absolutely right. If we if we go by the language that's been provided, especially what you said, uh, bans any school or corporation for teaching that an individual's moral, moral character or status as either privileged or oppressed is necessarily determined by his or her race, color, sex, or national origin. If we acknowledge membership in protected classes, does that in some way lead to yet another claim of either intended or unintentional discrimination? And, and you know, it's difficult to draw the line because all of this basically gets sorted out in the courts, unfortunately, at the expense of our incredibly well-intentioned clients and employers. And so, you know, the other thing that I think we need to think about, and and it's not talked about as much, but, you know, the way that the statute is written, and certainly there's been no question about the intent with regard to the connection to critical race theory, but what about other members of protected classes? I can think of a number of things that could be discussed in the workplace with regard to race, color, sex, or national origin that have nothing to do with race or critical race theory, but could run afoul of this law. The Holocaust, for example, could be problematic. Absolutely. You know, and slavery, and although the act doesn't define it, you know, what does sex mean? Does that include sexual orientation as well? Well, and, and I think Florida has also passed the don't say gay law um, that only applies, I believe, to the to school places. But that, too, I mean, if we're talking about sex, could some and I think the potential exists. I I don't think I should uh, talk about it as a question. Certainly the potential exists that someone is creative and could contend that uh, membership in LGBTQ um, classifications somehow could lead to a violation. Absolutely. And then, of course, the act goes on to say that someone should not have to bear the responsibility for or be discriminated against or receive adverse treatment because of actions committed in the past by other members of their same protected category. So what does that do to discussions about affirmative action programs for federal contractors? Right. And and the association with that is people shouldn't be made to feel guilty, right? Mm -hmm. Or the the acts uh, of their ancestors or the other members of the race with which they may agree or disagree. You know, it, it really is troubling to see where this will land. Like I said, once once it's signed, I think we expect to see some constitutional challenges. Certainly critics have argued that the bill is unconstitutional and a violation of the First Amendment. I, I don't foresee any difficulty in potentially bringing a claim about that, especially by employers who have been named by Governor DeSantis as allegedly running afoul of what now is being prohibited in the state of Florida. And so when employers call, I I like the idea of the options, right? Looking at 
the, the training um, through their council, having their council take a look at it, maybe even doing a train the trainer session, which may be available, I would certainly imagine eventually online because there will be organizations that think, hey, well, maybe we should put together some, some training materials that we think will be compliant with the law. Uh, and then offering up the disclaimer or the, the mandatory or voluntary attendance for this particular kind of training. Overall, anything else that you think that we should tell employers, especially with regard to the, the, the true and, and wide ambiguity in this law? I think what you've suggested are great best practices, and it's a good place to start, and just balancing the content of the training with also fulfilling other obligations that they have as an employer with respect to making sure that we are giving employees an avenue to complain about discrimination and harassment in the workplace and training those employees who should be trained whenever those policies are violated. And, and that's really great advice. I mean, something that's come up recently as well is is the number of av- avenues and a potential anonymous avenue in, in providing complaints to employers so that no one feels reluctant to report things to HR or up the chain of command uh, in the employment environment. And so, so really great advice. I know another thing is that you and I do a lot of handbook work to make sure that handbooks across the country are updated. There's so many things going on. We've now got the end forced arbitration for sexual harassment claims. There's um, a bill in Congress now that they're seeking to end forced arbitration in general, in commercial and employment contexts, which in part, right, when you're taking a cruise and you sign an arbitration agreement for that, <laughs> you don't even see in the, the 27 pages of information they give you to say sign and you can come aboard. You know, maybe maybe there's some good in that, but there are so many new laws and uh, requirements that must be followed and kept up with, ban the box, salary history bans, that this is just yet another ambiguous quagmire for folks to have to deal with and worry about, am I going to get sued if I even talk about DEI in the workplace anymore? Absolutely. And I agree with you on the handbooks. They can be a great tool for promoting compliance on the front end so that employees understand what the expectations are and then also defending claims when they arise so that employers can show that they had clearly articulated policies that complied with the laws in these areas. And the first step is that, right? We want to prevent the lawsuits. And if we can take these preventive measures and save just one lawsuit, well, we've saved uh, hopefully you've saved your client, um, you know, the, the viewer has saved their client tens of thousands of dollars in, in potential litigation costs. And we're doing everything we can to do that. But make sure that we have these um, available remedies and avenues to complain that it's not just through your boss who may be the alleged aggressor or harasser, that you can go to HR or go to the C-suite or certainly have an anonymous complaint line. And then equally important to make sure that we have measures in place to do investigations immediately. We can't put those investigations off. They have to be done. Uh, They have to be well documented because the EEOC is going to look for that. Juries are going to look for that. And we want to make sure that folks are, are well armed and have a lot of arrows in their quiver when going into situations like that. Mm-hmm. Those are great points. And another point I'd add to that is just making sure that you're following back up with the complainant. I think a lot of times we forget to do that as human resources professionals because we're so busy. And sometimes that in and of itself can trigger a complaint because the complainant doesn't feel like their concerns were adequately addressed. You and I, I think, are both speaking on different topics at our National Workplace Strategies Program, the, the program where 
We have clients from all over the country. We're going to Phoenix to the Biltmore uh, in uh, in Phoenix. I believe it's May 4th through 7th. Um, I'm going to be speaking uh, again about mental health in the workplace. We're going to talk a little bit about mental health diversity and identifying and responding to when we see mental health challenges in our employees. And how about you? What are you going to be talking about at Workplace Strategies this year? So I will be talking about multi-state compliance issues. And, you know, even this Woke Act can be one of those things where you might have to have different trainings or different policies for different states where you have states like Florida that are requiring employers to be neutral. And then you have other states that actually require employers to have certain types of training, like sexual harassment training. So it's become very difficult for employers that operate in multiple jurisdictions to keep up with those changes and make sure that they have a handbook that's going to be compliant in all of those states. So it'll be an interesting discussion, I'm sure. Well, and, and, and really much needed. I mean, that's, it's, it's really our premier event uh, for in-house HR people to, to come and visit. You don't even have to be a client. You're more than welcome to sign up. You can find that information on our website. But truly, uh, I believe there's usually between 50 and 100 breakout sessions on just about every topic you can think of. And there's a lot of uh, discussion and, and hey, where else can you ask lawyers questions for free? Use it. We have at least 100 to 200 lawyers attending the event, and and I think it'll be really interesting. And and so I just sort of want to close with this. You know, so often we point the finger at California as being the place where all of kind of the the let's just say interesting laws are the multiple protections that we don't even consider out here in the east. But I have to say, Florida and Texas. We're making a heck of a strive to to get uh, in the same sort of discussion, I think, with, <laughs> with California. And, and all we can do is wait and see what's going to happen. But I'm hopeful that we'll be able to sort through these things, at least for the benefit of our Florida employers, so that we're not going to be taken to court for vague and ambiguous laws that we neither have the intention nor the unintentional result of being discriminatory or being called discriminatory and then being hauled into court and having to spend money just to defend ourselves on on claims that really have no substance uh, to move forward in the court. So do you have any any closing thoughts for, for our folks who are listening? In closing, I would say stay tuned. I would expect that the governor is likely to take action on this bill within the next couple of weeks. It was ordered enrolled on March 10th, which was the day before the legislative session ended here in Florida. So it has not been presented to the governor for signature yet, but it likely will be very soon, any day now. And once that happens, Governor DeSantis has 15 days to consider whether to sign it. He can sign the bill into law, which we expect him to do based upon the prior press releases supporting the bill. And even if he doesn't sign it, it will become a a law without his signature after a certain amount of time as well. And we do know that he's busy. I'll I'll leave you with this, that in the past couple of weeks, he did sign a bill to officially designate strawberry shortcake with natural Florida dairy topping as the official state dessert. So he he does have his pen out. Well, you know what? Hey, I I think that might actually be a good thing. Having grown up in Lakeland and grown up with the strawberry festival and, and going to the strawberry festival every year, who am I to argue that strawberry shortcake is not the absolute best dessert? in the state, if not the country. So I think we'll give Key West a run for their money on, on Key Lime Pie, but I actually agree on that one. Florida <laughs> Florida is home for strawberry shortcake and the best you can get in the country. Me too, absolutely. 
Well, thank you, Deanne. I know that you're busy with, with HR Tampa. I've been busy with Suncoast HR, uh, our sister chapters across the bay for uh, SHRM. And uh, I know that you'll continue to get the word out. And uh, hopefully I'll see you again in the break room. Thank you so much for stopping by. This has been incredibly helpful. I hope that our clients and, and listeners find it helpful as well. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.